Um, it's Valentine's Day, and it's fascinating um, if you pay attention to what the expectations are for Valentine's Day, um, what they involve, and what we, look, we think love looks like. Um, largely, it seems to be about an exchange. If you're looking at it from the outside, right, as somebody who's not participating and as a parent with small children, it is totally w- rolling right past me this year. I only know it's Valentine's Day um, because as I dropped my kids off to school on Friday, there was a chance to send candy grams to your children and to their classrooms as a fundraiser for the PTA, and it occurred to me it was coming up, and that was that day. So immediately, of course, I sent my kids in and began to write down the little cards so that they would each have something. Um, But if you look at it from the outside, it's all about um, giving gifts or bribes. It's a little unclear. (laughs) Or gestures of apology for the past year, right? It's a little unclear what the flowers and cards are. You might have a candlelight dinner. There may be a little romance. But what seems to be oddly missing is conversation, right? Nobody says, this Valentine's Day, stay at home and just have a conversation, a long, leisurely conversation, right? Instead, it's, it's designed to say romantic love is all about activities, about exchange of gifts. Uh, but what's fascinating is how critical listening is to everything. And James picks that up in this passage because he's just told the audience that he's writing to, look, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. So James said, look, this amazing thing that has happened to you, you've experienced suffering and trial, but Jesus has come into your life, and the life that you are now living is a foretaste of the restoration of what the world will look like when God returns. The new life that you demonstrate because the word of God is dwelling within you will point people to what it looks like when God is really in charge. The ways that you live together as a community will demonstrate to the world what it looks like when God actually controls a community, right? The way that you engage the physical world around you and the things that you see will demonstrate what it looks like when God says, that belongs to me too, You're the beginning of the revolution that God intends. Now, from here, James could go into a lot of different directions, right? It would seem natural that maybe, well, let's talk about witness uh, or righteousness, or he could have talked about um, what it meant to be transformed. But look at what he says in verse 19. Given that you're the first fruits of this new creation, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. What's the thing that he wants everyone to pay attention to? Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Or it seems at least surprising. How is that an appropriate first thing to say after saying, the new creation's begun in you? Everything that the world has been longing for God to do, he is doing in you and among you right now. So this is the thing I want you to know. Um, shh. Listen. Don't talk so much and don't get angry. Why? Because first, listening is, I think, actually essential to our sanctification, to becoming who God desires us to be. 
And here's why I think. Listening before you speak is a posture of, it's a precondition for loving other people well. Right? Because listening is more than the physical act of hearing, right? It's almost a cliche to say that, you know, I know you heard me, but you aren't really listening. But I think if we listen well, if we listen wholeheartedly, not quick to speak, but to pay attention and to hold back anger, we're changed by the experience of listening. Now, it's very clear that people who are listened to are changed, right? I mean, that's why in our culture we're so starved um, to be listened to that we actually pay people to listen to us now, right? That's... Um, not all counselors do, but a significant portion of what they do is to give somebody uninterrupted listening. And it's worth a lot to us. And it fixes and heals a lot to us. And I suspect Dick would say um, in his pastoral ministry, while we come to him for biblical wisdom, advice, and prayer, a good portion of what he actually offers us when we meet with him is, I know there'll be somebody to listen to me. But the act of listening actually changes us, right? Because if I choose to listen to you, and, and James is writing to a congregation in the church saying, listen to one another, listening puts somebody else's feelings and thoughts and experiences and priorities before their, your own, right? If I'm listening without being quick to speak, it means I'm letting you talk and express and shape this conversation before I get my own thoughts and feelings and experiences out, which is why it's important after, you to, after he says, listen carefully, be slow to speak. Create space for the conversation. Now, we've all been in conversations before where um, we can't wait till the other person is finished talking so that we can get our point in. Right where you see their mouth moving, but all you can think is "be done," because I have something really important that I want to say. If any of you've been at work in a work meeting or committee meeting, you know this happens all the time. It's clear nobody's listening. We're all trying to get our points in. But I want to suggest that when we listen, without a desire to speak quickly, um, our listening is literally an act of service to the other person. It's a little bit of a death to self, isn't it? I'm putting my priorities, my passions, my um, need to be right second to your need to speak. It's a death to self. It's a choice to love someone more than you love yourself at that moment. It's literally a, a mortification of the flesh. Allowing someone else to be ahead and to be at front and to be at the center rather than making yourself in the front and in the center. And it's a rare commodity in a world where we have so many platforms to communicate what we want and what we think and what we feel and we've experienced, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Yik Yak, or even just the phone and email. By choosing to listen, we're engaging in a whole-bodied act of service to another person. Doing right what Paul says in so many of his epistles, put, let, um, consider others more highly than yourself. If only for a moment, and what we have to admit right now is that it kills us when we do that. And it's precisely that dying to self that Jesus invites us to. 
so that we're adequate examples of the first fruits of what it means to follow a Savior who died in our place and on our behalf. In listening to others, we don't merely die to self, right? But listening to other people also challenges us to seek to understand, to sympathize, and to empathize. It doesn't allow um, suffering or struggle or stress, which dominates the first part of James's letter, uh, to drive us to a harsh response, right? We've all known that when you're stressed out, um, it's very hard to listen. And it's easy to respond in an angry way. Uh, my wife and I were just talking about that the other day. She said, you know, when you're distracted doing email at home and the kids try to talk to you, you usually respond too harshly and too strongly. And it's true because I'm so focused on my own thing and getting my own message out that everything else is a distraction. And you all know that's true as well, right? When there's financial stress at the home, it's hard to listen and it's easier to be angry. Where you're in a stressful situation or a vocational change or moving a house or introducing a new child to your home or there's a health concern, it's difficult to respond graciously. And what James seems to say is, listen, don't be so quick to speak and rein in your anger and your harshness, which might be caused by the stress and the suffering that we've already talked about. Because when you do that, when you listen and you choose not to get angry, it changes an argument into a conversation, right? It changes somebody who could be your opponent and your enemy into a partner. It changes an enemy into somebody who actually bears the Imago Dei, the image of God, and that you treat them lovingly and with respect because there's somebody made in God's image who he values and who we as Christians who believe Jesus died for them value as well. When we're quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, we die to self, and we begin to extend love to people, right? And that's part of what shapes the community that God desires us to be. Um, And sometimes it isn't even just anger. It's just that gut response to need to be right or to confirm your own prejudices. I think of a conversation I had many, many years ago back when I lived in Chicago, Um, I was in new staff training with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the ministry I work with, and um, I was rooming at that conference with Wendell Moss. Wendell and I could barely be more different. Um, You all know me well enough, um, so I don't need to describe myself, but Wendell was um, uh, an African-American guy who played football for his university who came on staff with InterVarsity, right? So he's huge, I'm small, Um, he's strong, I'm very weak. In fact, just this morning, they're like, are you man enough to open this bottle of juice? And I had to think about, like, I'm not sure, but I'll try, right? I mean, Wendell's brawny. um, We come from very different worlds. And I remember one night we were talking, and Wendell began to share with me um, what it was like to grow up as an African-American man in the United States. And as he was talking, two things struck me that evening as we were sitting in um, the room that we shared, one of which was, what vastly different worlds we came from, even though we lived in the same country and went to many of the same schools, right? Every assumption I made about the world I lived in did not apply to his experience. And so it was everything from walking into a store, assuming whether people were approaching you because you were, um, they desired to serve you or they were just watching you to see if you stole something, to experiences on campus where I assumed if I saw campus security, they were coming to help me, and he assumed that they were coming to check his ID to prove that he deserved to be there, 
right? To being taught, um, I was taught, if you're pulled over by the police, well, one, shame on you because you're just a terrible driver, Greg, and you were speeding again, which is probably true. But that um, there's no fear for me. There's only just deep shame and a desperate hope that I won't get a ticket. Um, Wendell was trained, right, by his parents, as soon as you pull over, your hands are on the steering wheel and do not move. Because any gesture, even reaching for your wallet, could put your life at risk. Now, I grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago in DuPage County. DuPage County is one of the more affluent counties in the United States. It's sort of the Westchester to Chicago, right? Um, uh, it's one of the most solidly Republican um, counties in Illinois. And it occurred to me what a vast gap there was in my experience from Wendell. It would have been very easy for me to go, but that's not true. That's not my experience, right? To get my point in, to turn that into a uh, debate or a discussion, it was critical as an act of love to Wendell to sit quietly and not to speak. To listen, not abdicating responsibility to think critically or thoughtfully, but to be quick to listen and slow to speak at that moment as he was sharing something which he was trying to decide if I was trustworthy enough to receive. And not to respond defensively, well, that's not my experience of everything. That's not how the world works. Um, but to rein in defensiveness as an act of love to my brother. I had a similar experience. Um, we were at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp. We were doing a leadership conference for InterVarsity um, Redesigning curricula, nothing terribly exciting, but I remember very distinctly at around 10 o'clock at night, two of the staff women that I worked with came to me in tears. And they were so frustrated because the entire design of the program, the buildings that we had, the ways things were set up, so did not work for the nursing moms who were there and for moms who had little kids because they were full-time in ministry but also were bringing um, their toddlers. And they just said nothing about this recognizes that we're here. And they were just so frustrated. Um, they were in tears. Um, now, it would have been easy as a guy to go, oh, they're really sad. I should comfort them. But as any woman will tell you, tears are not merely an issue of sadness. Often, these, they're angry tears. And these were angry, do not comfort me. I'm really irritated tears. And my colleague, Alan Wakabayashi, um, came to them and just said, tell us more. It would have been so easy because we were in leadership at that point to try to explain. This is the only place we could find, right, to defend. We made as many accommodations as we could manage um, to uh, say, you know, this is part of your decision. You have to figure out how to make it work. But we sat for an hour and a half um, listening and trying desperately not to speak. Trying to rein in feelings of um, being attacked, of being misunderstood for what we were trying to do, of being ignored and un um, unappreciated for the actual things that we had done to try to make the experience better. And what I'll say is that conversation um, built more trust, more bridges, and helped us enact more important changes that affirmed their role in the work that they were doing as leaders in our ministry than any other conversation I've had before or since. But demanded that we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and definitely slow to anger. Because I think 
Actual Christian community demands more than having safe spaces, which is the buzzword that you get whenever you talk about diversity in the workplace or you talk about other things outside. Well, we'll create a safe space. There'll be a cone of silence. Nothing will go through. But the reality is I can create a safe space and still not be heard. I can create a safe space where nobody will feel attacked, but nobody actually is engaged. What James demands of us is not just that we're physically present and physically engaged in hearing, but actively listening. And then respectful and loving enough not to speak because I have a thought, just because I have a thought, and certainly restrain my emotions until I refrain from anger. And I think then, truthfully enough, press into love. And I was so grateful. Um, we were read 1 Corinthians 13 at the beginning of the service, but let me read it again and think about how Deeply, this actually defines what it takes to listen and not to speak. Right? And Paul actually starts out that way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy, speaking again and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I know everything. I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love, like listening, is patient, is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Um... Listening requires all those behaviors, right, if you're not going to speak. It requires enough trust and perseverance and hope and self-restraint and desiring the best of others that you create the conditions for them to flourish. And then James goes on to say, look, listen carefully to each other, to the stories, to the pain, to the hopes, to the dreams. Be slow to speak. Restrain yourself from anger because anger rarely produces God's righteous desires for our lives, he says in verse 20. Um, and therefore, reject the filth and evil that's around you. And I think he goes there because he realizes the temptation around anger and wanting to speak so often is not because we desire to edify other people, but we, or at best, we desire to edify them with um, our own insight, wisdom, and desires. And he says, look, um, that drive to control, to command, to fix, um, so rarely reflects God's own righteous desires. So reject all the filth and evil that drives us that way for two reasons, one of which is so often the way our culture uses words um, is evil, right? All you have to do is watch the political campaign for about 15 or 20 minutes if you can stomach it. And you realize as important as it is for us to be engaged in the political process, um, the words are rarely uplifting but more often manipulative, they're most often damaging and destructive rather than constructive and hopeful, right? They rarely are engaged in truth-telling and more often designed to manipulate. And that's just the political campaign. You turn on any television ad and you realize um, their goal is not to help you but to sell to you, right? Um, too often, even in our interpersonal conversations, uh, we use words to get what we want, not to build bridges of truth to one another. The way our culture uses words can be evil. And then James goes, the moral filth 
around you, but I think he's also pointing out the evil that's so prevalent within us, right? Because um, Jesus is quick to point out in Matthew 15, 17 through 20, when the Pharisees uh, accuse the disciples, why are they eating that? And Jesus goes, why are you so concerned with what goes in the mouth? Because whatever comes in your mouth goes back out the other side. It doesn't really matter. What's really destructive is what comes out of your mouth, because it reflects your heart. And I suspect that's why James says, um, don't be so quick to speak, because it reveals a little bit too much of your heart. Restrain yourself from anger. Put away the destructive things in your own heart that get in the way. Um, in this book, uh, Jesus, Man of Prayer, Margaret Magdalene um, writes a meditative intercession on the word, and I thought it might be helpful for us as we think about what it takes to listen and why it's so difficult because of the ways that words are misused, and therefore silence on our part may actually allow us to sanctify it. She says on the debased word, Lord, you have given us power to communicate through words, but we have misused and devalued them, overloaded and squandered them, used them as barriers and sheltered behind them to avoid the truth. In a world heavily influenced by the media, make us alert to words that would cheapen, flood, manipulate, the smooth word of propaganda, the persuasive word that would rob us of right judgment. Forgive us the divisions of the searing word, words spoken in heat and anger, barbed words, unspoken words that fester inside, the wordiness of words that stifle relationships. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, for the day when I arise. Yea, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. So then she asks us to reflect on the hidden word. Lord, give us receptivity here, those who speak without words, the mute, autistic, inarticulate, the creatures who share the earth with us. And the sensitivity to be attuned to the silent voices of the persecuted, the cries of those trapped in their own isolation, the language of tears. Lead us to a right expectation of words so that we are not disappointed at the end of our travels because we are expecting the wrong things. Where a man expects a thing, God provides a person, the word within a word, unable to speak a word, swaddled with darkness. We give thanks for the gift of words and pray for all those who are called to use them in witness and confession of faith and prophecy and teaching and healing and consolation and public proclamation and private counseling and writing and printing. Um, Lord, grant us to be disciplined in everyday speech, that in every phrase and sentence is right, every word is at home, taking its place to support the other, the word neither different, uh, diffident nor ostentatious, the easy commerce of the old and the new, the common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word, precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together every phrase and every sentence and end in the beginning, and then she reflects on what it means that we worship the word who became flesh. James says, look, one way to demonstrate that Jesus is alive, one expression of the fact that this community will reflect what it looks like when um, God is in charge is that you'll listen carefully to each other. Don't be too eager to speak and restrain the need to fight and to win. Then he goes on to say this. Um, Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word 
and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James seemed to say that this, look, um, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you in verse uh, 21b. And then how do you accept that word? He says in verse 22, obey it. Right? If listening is important in our sanctification to change us into a certain type of community, it's critical in our salvation as we work out our relationship with Jesus. And how do you accept and live out that word? He says, look, do what Jesus tells you to do. Obey the word because listening to the word actually means obeying it. Otherwise, we've just physically heard it and it makes no impact on us. And Jesus tells a story about that, doesn't he? He says, there's a sower who goes to sow um, seed in a field and some of it falls on ground that's rich and there's fruit a hundredfold. Other of it falls on rocky soil and is taken away by the birds and the distractions. Others of it fall in thorny soil and it never bears fruit, right? And he says, look, the reality is if you allow the word to bear fruit in your life, it will blossom forth into life. But it's so easy for the word to fall in places where the, um, into stony ground where it never develops a root, where it grows quickly and withers away, where birds um, can take it, where thistles and thorns um, obscure it and it dies. And part of what he says in the parable of the sower, <coughs> excuse me, is this. He asks, what kind of heart do you have so that you can receive the word and allow it to bear fruit? James goes on to say, look, engage the word in a sustained way. Listen to it in a sustained way. And that's where that um, image in verses 23 through 25 comes from. You can look in a mirror, he says, but you don't go thinking about what kind of person you see in the mirror much beyond doing what you need to do, unless you're a terrible narcissist. <clears throat> right? You don't, most of us go to a mirror, we quickly do what we need to do. We, we set our hair right, we dab away something that might be on our face. But the goal of looking in the mirror is not to continue to think of what you saw in the mirror all day. Right? You rarely are going through, like, you know, an hour or two later going, as I was looking in the mirror this morning. Right? Um, if you do, something's terribly wrong. But, he, but James says, look, that's fine. What you should do, though, with the word is very different. With the same concentrated gaze that you may gaze in the mirror, but in a sustained, continuing, ongoing way, reflect and engage and be changed by what you read. A mirror will allow you to change the outward form of how your hair might look or whether there's a bit of toothpaste at the corner of your mouth. But it won't allow you the same, the same sustained life change that pouring over scripture, not just once in the morning, but over the course of the day will bring on to you. Jesus says um, consistently throughout the Gospels, if you love me, obey me. In fact, loving God means obeying God. And we, those of us who are married, know that that's fundamentally true, right? That hearing means nothing without actual changed behavior. Um, my wife would be happy to testify that the times that I probably most violate my lovers when over a long sustained period of time, I do not listen and do not change. And any married couple here would also testify to the fact that how do I know my spouse loves me? 
it's not just because they say that, though that's critical. It's because behavior has changed. If you watched Fiddler on the Roof or you know the story, um, there's a point where one, the, the title character, Tevye, asks, do you love me to his wife? And his wife just lists, look, I've married you. I've kept house with you. I've raised children with you. How can you even ask a question like that? right?" And she's saying, words mean little. Do you see the decades of life we've put in together? Now, Tevye is insecure enough to go, I know, but do you love me? And she eventually responds, yes, but none of that yes would matter if she couldn't back it up with decades of I've changed your clothes, I've washed your clothes, I've fixed your clothes, I've raised your children. That's what love looks like. Jesus says, look, loving me means listening to me and then obeying me and changing Listening is important for our sanctification. It's important for our salvation. And finally, listening is essential to our witness. Um, James goes on to say, look, if you listen to one another and you listen to the Lord and are changed by that, then here's his final thoughts in verses 26 through 27. Those of you who consider yourself religious and do not keep a tight rein on your tongues, deceive yourselves. And your religion is worthless, he says. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word. It's interesting that James goes back to the tongue again, doesn't it? Um, Because he's talked about the tongue earlier. Listen, don't speak so fast. And he comes back. Do you want to know what true faith looks like? Reign in your tongue. Reign in your tongue, care for the poor, and stay holy. And what James is actually doing, he's, he's outlining the rest of his book. The rest of James focuses on these three issues. But I want to suggest that um, taming our tongue is actually one of the key tests for true faith. It's a sign of our transformed life because the tongue is wildly po- powerful in our lives. <clears throat> My friend Dan Dank used to say um, when he was young, a boy, he'd go to the doctor, and he was always astounded at how powerful his tongue was. Because the doctor would sit him down and he'd be like, stick out your tongue. And Dan was convinced at like seven or eight that he, the doctor could see everything about Dan's life just by looking at his tongue. Right? He didn't realize he was looking at the back of his throat. He just thought, there must be something in my tongue that shows whether I'm sick or not or whether I've been bad or good. <clears throat> but he said, it's really true. The words that we speak reveal our hearts. And disciplining our tongue, choosing not to use it when we listen, but also to use it well, may fully reflect our transformed life. And then I think caring for the widows and orphans and holiness, um, which are the themes of the rest of the book, begin with listening, don't they? Um, Listening is really a precursor to service so that we aren't paternalistic, choosing for other people what we think they need rather than what they actually say they need. And it's important that we listen while we serve concomitant with our service so we don't objectify them into these poor people that need my help. Um, InterVarsity's urban program in New York City sponsors a program called Feed 500, and one of the tasks that we do is we give every student a bag to feed somebody who's homeless on the streets, but we always provide them with two lunches. Two lunches because it's not enough just to hand out a bag which objectifies that person into a pitiable person who needs our help, but we pack them with two lunches so that you offer them a lunch and then you can sit down with them and share a meal with them. The goal is to train our students not just to be merciful, but actually to be compassionate and engaged. To listen, to give that person at least the dignity of a half-hour conversation. And so we actually prep them both on how to do that safely, uh, but also how to do it well. 
to ask questions about that person's hopes, dreams, and experiences while you share a meal with them. To listen as the precursor to service so that we know what to do and then as we do it so that we both recognize our common humanity uh, as people created in Christ's image. Listening also is an important way to avoid sin, isn't it? Um, what strikes me about the political campaign is not just how sinful and brutal the campaign talk is, but how poor Christians are when we speak about the campaign. Facebook is horrifying when you look at what Christians are saying to one another, about one another, and about the situation around us. Um, I'm frankly more grieved by what Christians say during the political campaign than I am by what candidates say. I, of course, expect candidates to be terrible. Maybe that's unfortunate, but I do. I would hope Christians would repudiate bad speech, would call all candidates to truth and love, and would hold one another accountable to ask, um, are we serving as salt and light now? Or are we merely playing in the mud? Because that's what it would mean, I think, to love our community well, to do what Jesus said, to be salt and light in those places. It's, of course, this is why this may be an appropriate Valentine's Day talk and sermon. It's not really about love per se, straight on. It's not about romance. Um, as important as that is uh, to sustaining love, nor is it about great acts of service, but it's about what James calls us to do. How do we listen to one another and to the word well? How do we discipline our tongues and our conversations with one another and our engagement with the world that people can see Jesus? You all are engaged in a great um, learning opportunity right now. I, I, we, I know this is the, another week of talking about women in ministry, leadership. Um, I had mentioned it the last time I preached here, but what a fantastic opportunity. And I'll say again this week what I said last because I think it's germane to this topic. <clears throat> the decision you reach will be very important. The way you reach it will be equally important to your health as a congregation. Because God is concerned not just with ultimate decisions, but the love by which we have that conversation together. We're going to be called to listen to one another deeply and well, to restrain ourselves from speaking or just arguing in anger to win, but to submit ourselves to Scripture and to obey it and to listen to one another's stories as we do it in such a way that our tongues are disciplined, the people around us are served, and evil is put at bay. It's a tremendous opportunity, not just what you, the outcome, <clears throat> but the process by which you do it. And the great thing, at least in my many years of experience of being here with you, um, is you're a congregation that delights in listening to one another, delights in submitting to the word. And I think as you go through that process, what James says um, in verse 18 will be very true. You'll reveal yourself to be the first fruits of the new creation. You'll become the community that people look to and go, that's only explainable because Jesus has arrived. That's a community uh, um, deeply, uh, that deeply loves one another and cares for one another and reflects the virtues that Jesus has called us to. And then witness will occur, mission will expand, and Jesus will be glorified. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, I pray, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us ears to hear your spirit as uh, he speaks through the scriptures? Would you give us word, uh, ears to hear your voice as we listen in prayer? Would you give us ears to hear uh, the ways that you desire to speak to us through one another um, so that increasingly 
we could hear the cries of the world um, begging the people of God to speak truths about who God is and the hope that we have. And then when we speak, if we speak, may our words be leavened with love, generous in the offer of hope, and clear about our faith so that you would be glorified. Amen.